0: and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com.
1: No purchase necessary. group prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello and welcome to episode 242 of the UK True Crime Podcast. I'm Adam. Sorry for the delay. Life has thrown up some rather annoying challenges this week. I mean, not Matt Hancock level challenges, but enough for this short delay. The episode is, I think, like an England victory over Germany, it's worth waiting for. It returns to the terrifying subject of stalking, but is quite unlike anything I've ever heard before. A huge thank you to Chris Wood, remember him, for the research and writing of this episode. In fact, Chris has a great new book out at this time, called Famous Last Words. If you head to Amazon, or the Pen and Sword website, you can get it now. Talking of books, my book on Angus Sinclair, Gone Fishing, is now released, and you can buy it at Amazon or at mangobooks.co.uk. As expected, it is immediately at the top of the charts. Well, 1037th, but let's not split hairs about the detail. Why don't you get it today for that true crime fan in your life? That is Gone Fishing by me, Adam Lloyd, and Chris Clark. Talking of true crime fans, A huge thank you, as always, to my supporters on Patreon, especially the new members of this exclusive club, that is Martha Cole, Emily May Simpson, and Jodie Conrad. Thank you so much for your support, which is much appreciated. Two quick shout-outs this week. Firstly, to fellow podcaster Chantel, host of the Lady Justice podcast, a talented writer and podcaster, and a friend of mine. Hang in there, Chantel, we all have your back. And if you haven't listened to Chantal's podcast before, check it out. It's the Lady Justice podcast. And very special birthday wishes for Patreon supporter Mark Herkit on your 50th birthday. Happy birthday for Monday just gone, Mark. Oh, and I hear from Holly. You need to step up your performance on the guest the month and year game. A very happy birthday to you, Mark. And thank you so much for listening. you got to keep it classy in your 50s, Mark. This episode is sponsored by Stitch Fix. If the last year has taught us anything, it's to prepare for the unexpected. And now it's time to venture out of the house without wearing tracksuit bottoms. Get Stitch Fix today, so you can emerge with your best style ever. I love Stitch Fix, as an expert really gets me and finds me great clothes. And now you can even preview your stylist selections and be sure to get exactly your style. Prefer to be surprised? They can do that too, and it's what I do most of the time. I get amazing items I wouldn't normally even consider. When you have the constant demands on your time as I do, as the UK's 37th most popular true crime host, I don't really want to be trailing around the shops. Stitch Fix does the hard work for me. It makes making great style effortless for women and for men. Get started at stitchfix.co.uk/truecrime and you'll get 20% off when you keep everything in your fix. That's stitchfix.co.uk slash truecrime for 20% off when you keep everything in your fix. stitchfix.co.uk slash truecrime To set context, it's time for our guest a month and year game, but today it's just a year. Come on now, Mark Herkitt. this is going to be a breeze for you this week. The best-selling single in the UK this year was The Spice Girls With Wannabe, the top-selling album, ironically, was Alanis Morissette with Jaggy Little Pill. See what I did there? And in the news this year, a gunman killed 16 children, a teacher and himself in the Dunblane Massacre in Scotland. It was the worst killing spree in the UK since the Hungerford Massacre in 1987. Two men were found guilty of the murder of Daniel Handley, who disappeared near his London home in October 1994 and whose body was found near Bristol five months later. And in F1, Damon Hill won the Japanese Grand Prix, clinching the Drivers' World Championship. Did you get the year? It was 1996, the year it was originally coming home. Streatham is a popular district of South London. In the 1950s, it had the longest and busiest shopping street in South London, and even the site of the UK's first supermarket, when Express Dairy's premier supermarkets opened in 1951. Richard Jan lived in Streatham with his parents, and outwardly at least he appeared to be the epitome of the model's son. He was, like me, ridiculously intelligent, with an IQ of over 150, and he excelled at Ealing College for boys. Richard was the oldest of two boys and his mum doted on him. Despite his academic prowess, however, his teenage years were acutely challenging. He suffered with his mental health and became very paranoid and withdrawn, and on one occasion he even beat another child to the ground with a lump of wood for having dared to make a face at him. This example of reacting to a seamlessly innocuous event proved to be a haunting precursor for a prolonged period of such behaviour later in his life. But Richard did well at school and went to university, where he emerged with a degree in biochemistry. Armed with this qualification, he landed a job in a lab at the Queen Charlotte Hospital in Hammersmith. He enjoyed the work, and outside the lab his interests focused around military history and astrology, but socially he still continued to struggle. He was generally considered as something of a loner, and he didn't have much success in forming relationships with women having no meaningful relationships other than with his mum. This was, of course, pre-internet dating. However, his relationship with his mum began to deteriorate as well. At 27, he was made redundant, which, if it's happened to you, you'll know. It's a massive blow whatever your age. This appeared to have a huge impact on Richard and on his visits home to see his parents. He became increasingly bad-tempered. Richard's dad, an eye surgeon, was frankly a nasty, foul-mouthed and abusive man who bullied and beat his wife, as well as Richard and his brother when they were children. It appeared that Richard not only inherited his dad's aptitude for academic work, but also his horrible temper and his violent tendencies. His behaviour following his redundancy had begun to spiral quite dramatically as he sank into depression and he became more violent, particularly towards his own mum, Peggy. So fearful was his mum that her son was falling into the same pattern as her husband, she knew she needed to do something, and the tipping point came when he threatened to kill her during one of his many violent attacks. This prompted Peggy into making the call to the London Borough of Ealing Social Services and for them to assess his mental health condition. Peggy, as Richard's mum, was witnessing firsthand the very darkest moods of her son and the frightening change in his personality. He was impossible to be around, she said. He was so depressed, so ill. He was changing beyond recognition. He was barely my son at all. Despite the regular and violent attacks that Richard subjected his mum to, she constantly refused to report her son to the police. Peggy, though, did finally initiate proceedings with mental health provisions, and on the 9th of October 1996, Richard was assessed at his home by her social worker, Shauna Bailey. There were two doctors and the police who also attended as backup. He was certainly not a particularly amenable patient, with the medical staff having to spend considerable time coaxing him from his room before asking him a series of questions. Although psychiatrists judge Richard Jansman mentally ill, he was not considered to be a danger. At worst, it was thought he may suffer from some form of personality disorder Perhaps his high levels of intellect shrouded the judgments made, but in any case, Richard refused to submit to any voluntary treatment. I'm no expert, but there appears to be a great area within this field, where collaborative and partnering agencies seem to be quite separate, with different aims, which can lead to a blurring of the lines, culminating in great difficulties in attempting to administer the best treatment possible for specific patients. For example, in the hours that followed the assertion that Richard could not be detained in the sphere of mental health provisions, he was instead arrested by police and bound over to keep the peace. But within one hour of his release, he was back at the family home where he started smashing windows, so he was quickly arrested and bound over once again. To his paranoid mind, everything that was happening was evidence of a plot to destroy him, and he became obsessed with the idea of wreaking vengeance upon anyone. There had been a part of this so-called plot. Certainly, if anyone thought that this assessment, and the fact he was now known to social services, would lead to a positive outcome, they were very much mistaken. Instead, the events proved to be the catalyst for years of torment towards quite literally hundreds of victims. Richard detested the way that the state had tried to intervene in his situation, and his response was to draw up a hate list health officials, doctors, nurses, solicitors, social workers, probation officers and counsellors, essentially anyone who had even been slightly involved with his case. He declared a personal war against officialdom, believing that all of these individuals were part of some kind of grand coalition, all conspiring against him to have him sectioned under the Mental Health Act. This was clearly something that Richard could not live with, and of the opinion that he should never be bracketed in the same vein as other patients that had undergone similar treatment, and that he was way above anything of this sort. Still enraged by his mum's efforts to have him sectioned, he moved from his family home, and he took a room, at a friend of his from university. The room was in a house in Streatham. From this address, Richard Jam began his onslaught of revenge. Initially only and I say only in the loosest possible sense of the word, by making nuisance phone calls and sending a host of menacing letters to those he viewed as responsible for trying to have him sectioned. At the top of his hit list was Shauna Bailey, the social worker that had conducted the assessment on him. He instantly made her a target of vitriolic hatred, which manifested itself in acts of intense anger and violence. Twice she was the victim of late night physical attacks near her front door as she walked home from evenings out, resulting both times in hospital treatment. The most severe of these attacks saw Richard beat her face repeatedly with a brick. On another occasion, Richard torched her car. This behaviour was not restricted or indeed exclusively confined to attacks on Shauna Bailey. Many others had their car tyres slashed, were stalked, and followed home late in the evening, or even bombarded late at night with pizzas, or taxis were called for them. He would make literally thousands of threatening or silent phone calls, again to anyone that he felt had wronged him in their attempts to off him treatment. His behaviour was spiralling out of control, but it was about to take a terrifying downward turn. Ealing councillor Liz Brooks had chaired a social services committee, that had considered some of the complaints made by Richard following his ill-fated mental health assessment. Clearly enraged at her part in the process, again we should remember that Liz Brooks was merely doing her job as a counsellor, Richard began to plague her with silent phone calls and he broke into her car twice, although nothing was ever stolen. It seemed at this point that Richard just wanted to let his victims know that he was around them all the time, that he could break his way inside their properties and reinforced that feeling that they could never sleep too soundly. He wanted to inflict the maximum amount of psychological terror possible. One night, whilst asleep in her London home, Liz Brooks and her family were very nearly killed by Richard Jan when he firebombed the house. Liz later recalled how she woke up in the middle of the night to the terrifying sight of smoke and fire engulfing her home in Acton, West London. She said later, It was his intention to kill me and my family. My 13 and 15 year old children had to jump out of the first floor bedroom. I was trapped in a room downstairs and my husband was rescued from the roof. As if this wasn't bad enough though, to compound matters she also recalled how the family felt so incredibly let down by the police following the incident, she said. We were virtually abandoned by the police and there wasn't a proper investigation into the fire. My family felt this was never taken seriously, and for months and years afterwards we were frightened about this man coming back and doing something similar or worse. He continued to intimidate me by coming to council meetings, sitting in the public gallery, and I had to look him in the eye, knowing that he tried to kill me. Richard was questioned several times by police but never convicted, and so free to carry on his vendetta. It would later transpire that much of what he inflicted upon his chosen targets was simply ignored by the police. Meanwhile, the treatment, in particular of Shauna Bailey, was eerily consistent over a period of years. She did, of course, report the initial actions of Richard Jan to police. However, much like Liz Brooks, she found they were not very helpful. After Shauna's car was attacked in 1998, Officers did not undertake even the most basic investigations. Furthermore, even when Richard had been issued with a restraining order, the constant breaches of this were continually ignored. He was heard to have made several threats about kidnapping a social worker and he constantly ignored warnings about harassment. As well as Shauna's complaints, other victims were also filtering the name of Richard Jan through to police but despite the multiple crime reports naming him, police said they didn't really know what they could do. It is then of little wonder that Shauna Bailey, following six long and torturous years of abuse, felt forced into fleeing her job and home in 2001. Feeling totally unprotected by the authorities, the strain of waiting to be attacked and possibly killed was, for Shauna, impossible to bear. Thankfully, in 2003, a full six and a half years after his harassment began, a new chief inspector took charge of the investigation and began to afford the victims the voice they'd previously been denied. In February 2002, Richard Jan was finally detained in custody, having been charged with a series of public nuisance offences relating to several healthcare organisations, which had become targets of his ever-growing hit list. Following police searches of his room, items found included a loaded air gun and, perhaps most tellingly, the strange scrawled document he'd called the Fascist Horde. This document basically consisted of a flowchart layout which linked individuals and organisations and revealed such words as terminated, obliterated, and bombed next to the names of some of his victims. He'd even labelled his plan as World War Three and was hell-bent on causing as much carnage as possible. With renewed vigour, the police had finally decided to act upon the evidence before them, and a huge inquiry was launched. Hundreds of people were interviewed, and police were finally able to charge him, though it was difficult to pin down all the relevant charges, as they were so numerous. Police felt that two counts of arson with intent to endanger life, and one of causing a public nuisance, Between November 96 and February 2003 were best suited to embrace all aspects of his reign of terror and against these charges Richard Jan was finally forced to stand trial at Middlesex Guildhall Crown Court in April 2004. The court heard that Jan had transformed from a mild-mannered lab worker to a psychopath who terrorised the health professionals trying to help him. In order to find his victims' homes and addresses, he'd even hired private detectives, leaving no stone unturned in his quest for retribution. Across the six-year span, as well as the physical stalking and violence he meted out, he'd made over 4,500 crank calls and sent in excess of 200 threatening letters. Many of Jan's victims had left their jobs, homes and in some cases even changed their identities in order to try to evade him. Some, though, found the strength to testify against him from behind the glass screen at the trial. At the conclusion of the eight-week trial, Richard Jan was convicted on all counts and told he'd have to return to court on July the 9th to be sentenced. One former associate, who was present in court, was clear in his opinion of what he thought Jan ought to be sentenced to, saying, He's a very sick man indeed. He's a danger to anybody. Whatever sentence they give him, I hope he ends it a different man. If they let him go otherwise, he will start again. The judge agreed. On the 9th of July, the courtroom reconvened to hear Jan's fate. The judge told him, You cunningly set out to unnerve and ruin people who you thought had cost you. He described Jan as devious, manipulative and a bully. And just prior to passing the sentence, he said, Her Majesty's subjects need protection from you. You, who claimed your motive was to protect your own rights, completely ignored and abused the rights of others. The judge sentenced Jan to life imprisonment, but added that due to the exceptional nature of the case, he would not set a minimum tariff for the sentence and would leave this instead to the Home Secretary. Outside court, the leading detective said, There has never been a case like this before. He is undoubtedly Britain's worst stalker, a very dangerous individual who has ruined many lives. This man was remorseless and relentless in the way he inflicted terror on people. As we have heard, the ultimate apprehension of Richard Jan was largely due to the re examining of the evidence through a new detective chief inspector. And of course, this should be acknowledged and applauded. However, in the aftermath of the trial and sentencing, the Met came under severe scrutiny for their failings in terms of just how long Jan was able to implement his tyrannical regime. Shauna Bailey, the principal recipient of Jan's abuse, was forced to live under witness protection and assumed a new identity. Speaking in 2010, she claimed that the failures from both the Met to investigate Jan and from the IPCC, which oversaw the internal police review, had been even more harmful than the actual violent harassment she'd suffered. She wanted to try to bring to light the notion that police forces were woefully underprepared to deal with victims who experienced perpetual crime again and again. Her solicitors wrote to the IPCC detailing a shocking history of inaction and incompetence on the part of the Met, which they argued allowed Jan to continue his terrifying campaign with apparent impunity. The letter noted a succession of serious flaws. For instance, one victim received 393 calls, suffered physical assaults and acts of criminal damage, all of which were simply permitted to continue despite a clearly identified suspect. Furthermore, the solicitors highlighted serious institutional failures in the Met's internal review. After Shauna Bailey made a formal complaint back in 2003, among the complaints was the final report, which despite having taken three years to compile, did not even investigate allegations against specific officers or consider the Met's failure to look at the serious reports submitted by several victims. Her solicitors also stated that the IPCC's conduct in overseeing the Met's inquiry was inherently flawed, making them complicit in the additional appalling distress suffered. And finally, in August 2006, you've guessed it, the IPCC declared itself happy with the Met's internal investigation and ruled that it should be closed. In April 2008, Shauna herself claimed that she was told by the IPCC commissioner that the report should never have been signed off as satisfactory. No officer has been disciplined in relation to the case, the IPCC's view being that it was the system rather than individuals that had failed her. In a statement, they did accept finally that the overall response was not good enough and the Met Police asserted, for their part, that an investigation into the police handling of the case identified no matters of misconduct against any individual officer, but it did highlight a number of areas of learning and made recommendations for improving best practice which has since been acted upon. How many times have we heard it? I think we'll finish the story today with one quote from Shauna, which pretty much encapsulates all we've heard so far. She said, One of the really sad things about the case is that in seeking to ruin the lives of so many others, he's also wasted his own life. So what do you make of what we've heard today? Stalking we've covered many times on this podcast, but not to this level and degree. But how did he get away with it for so long? And I know we don't like to criticise the authorities or the police, we support the police. But how was he allowed to get away with it for so long? For so many years. Richard Jan is now in prison and is unlikely to be released. But what about those people whose lives he's devastated? Not just people like Shauna Bailey, who've been to the extreme examples of having to change her name and going under the Witness Identity programme. What about all those other people as well that have been affected, that have been intimidated and abused? All those number of people, for them, it changes them. They aren't the same people after that's happened. So for them, they're also living their own sentence. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to this late edition of the UK True Crime podcast. To discuss this story or any other aspect of UK True Crime, please head to the Facebook group where, among many other things, it's never dull. And to win your signed copy of my book about Angus Sinclair gone fishing, and to see bonus episodes and other exclusive content, just head to patreon.com slash UK True Crime. So that's all for me for today, for this week. I'll be back, as usual, on Tuesday next week. So until then, please do take it easy, and despite all the others, Stay classy. Cheerio for now.
0: It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woo a hand clapper, a high-fiver? I kind of like the high-five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At ChumbaCasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino-style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses, so don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW group prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find